Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Also, your book listeners can now pre-order my new novel, Careering, coming from Sphere next March. It's a workplace rom-com where the love interest is the job itself. Can rookie intern Imogen and workaholic maverick editor Harry make peace with the fact that they love their jobs, but their jobs won't ever love them back? Or is a chaotic rebellion calling? There's only one way to find out. Pre-orders are available from Waterstones. Now on to today's guest, author and journalist Lucy Mangan. I've been a fan of Lucy's work for a very long time, especially her memoir, Bookworm, A Personal History of Children's Literature. Listeners, that one is right up your alley. We're talking today to celebrate the publication of Lucy's first novel, Are We Having Fun Yet? An exhilarating, exhaustive, funny and infuriating diary of one woman's life with her young family. Lucy is very much a reader's writer, if you know you know. We talked about our mutual love of Eve Garnett, the Phantom Tollbooth, the perfection of Persephone books and why we need to see ourselves in the stories we read. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I have been desperate to um, invite you on for ages. And I love the book so much. I love Are We Having Fun Yet? And it's just so funny and exhilarating. And it's just, it's making me feel really, really cross, but sort of deliciously cross in the way that fiction can. I hope so. Yeah, people keep saying to me, there's there's such a lot of rage in it. And I thought, God, I, I thought I'd really held myself back. I thought I did really well to get the balance right. Well, I don't know if it's because I listened to you on the Middle podcast and I love them and I right. love their podcast. So yeah, I think the um, the anchor there was, um, I think they were very keen to to get the rage out, or to start the rage. Um, but also I know on that podcast, you said that of late, you've not been reading in the way that you usually read. I mean, the pandemic has been such a weird time. And over lockdown, I went in and out. You know, sometimes I was just reading like my life depended on it. And other days I'd just be staring at the wall and going, imagine reading, imagine, what a joke. Um, And there was one very weird period that actually was quite frightening and upsetting where I couldn't read, didn't want to read and couldn't imagine ever being a reader again. I didn't feel like a reader anymore. It was like a thing I... I once did 
and now was over for me. And that was really, really weird because there've been times when I, you know, haven't been able to get into books and there's been times when I haven't really been in the mood very much, but I've never not felt like a reader. And I did towards the end of lockdown, I was like, everything, just something had been lost in me, kind of cauterized. It was very, very odd. Must have been so frightening because I also loved your memoir, Bookworm. And I know that, you know, you have been reading in a passionate and very immersive way for as long as you've been conscious. Yeah, exactly. It's a quite, and it, it's not till it goes that you realise what an important part or what a large part, large part of your identity it is. It's like when you lose a, a job for the first time and you kind of go, oh God, my work is part of me. I, I didn't realise because I've always been at work. But reading, I mean, whoever thinks that's going to go. So what was the book that brought it back? There wasn't really. I mean, I'd love that to be the, the kind of Damascene moment and, or the cure, or, but it, it really wasn't. It was just a gradual recovery once we came out of lockdown. I, mean, I think it's been a, it feels like it's been a really long time since I read properly immersively like I used to. And I don't know if that's now something that I've got to get used to, a bit like I got used to reading as an adult rather than as a child because when you're a child you know you really are you're that porous and, and everything that you really do connect with the book and it's it's just another reality for you and then when you grow up you you read and you read in a different way you start to appreciate what the writer's doing and you enjoy the story and you didn't enjoy this bit and it, you become that that bit more detached mm. and occasionally you get the the book that blows it all away I, I remember reading um Gone with the Wind once in my yeah, mid to late 20s, and literally stayed in bed over the weekend to read it. And that was like reading like a child again. Um, and the same again years later in my late 30s, reading Patrick Ness's um, The Knife of Never Letting Go. Again, it's just such a cracking story, as well as being clever and moving and all the rest of it. I don't know the Patrick Ness at all. It's his YA trilogy. The trilogy overall is called Chaos Walking. Um, and Knife of Never Letting Go is the first one. Uh, and it's about... Uh, it's a planet that has only males on it, only men and boys, and they can all hear each other's thoughts all the time. So the planet is just filled with noise and quite horrible noise at that most of the time. And there's no privacy, no, yeah, no quietness, no stillness. And and Patrick Ness said this it was based around the, the experience of teenagers now in in, a, in the social media world that they are never alone. They are never never truly have, have any experience of solitude mm. or privacy or sitting in the moment. Uh, until one day this boy on the planet hears a patch of, of silence, although he can hardly give it a name. He has this patch. Of, and it turns out a girl has arrived on the planet and he can't read her thoughts. So obviously then we get into the whole, whole other range of metaphors uh, that they can't quite understand each other, but in that difference and in that distance, they actually discover something else um, of value. Uh, anyway, it's just, it was just one, and a bit of cracking story as well. You know, as you, as you often get in um, books for younger readers and books for young adults, plot has far more primacy than, than in a lot of literature mm. for adults, <laughs> um, proper books. And it was just great. Yes, again, just stayed up till four o'clock in the morning reading that when I really shouldn't have. I had, did have to go to work that day because I was an adult. I was just thinking when you were telling me about the knife of never letting go, about the people I've talked to who have really struggled to read and connect with books in the pandemic and they found periods of escape, but also they can't, you know, it's that need to 
immerse yourself even if as you say you do it in a different way when you're an adult than you do as a child and whether it's to do with the fact that in a, we've sort of had that really strange period where we were sort of properly alone but never alone you know in that mm. social media way and if it was a fear of kind of having so little actual contact and only the weird sort of very like flattened but heightened online contact because I think I had moments of feeling this where if I let go of that link and went away with a book and sort of let myself be in a book then Mm. everything would be severed and I'd have nothing and no roots that's interesting no I didn't I didn't feel like because I didn't do any hardly any zoom calls or quizzes or anything or any whatsapp stuff continued living my life much as it was led before which is is without much human contact I, I go out about and see friends about once a month so it wasn't it was all very much my direction of travel I think it was more the uncertainty and the anxiety and the fear that eats up your mental bandwidth and makes it very very hard to read and it's it's almost as it sounds trite do I sound like an absolute fart ass but it's it's like being you know, if you have lots of problems in your life, if you, you know, if you're poor, if you have lots of things eating up your your mental bandwidth of just surviving, you're not going to be a great reader because yeah. you literally don't have the time and resources and the social capital and every other kind of capital to sit down and enjoy yourself in that way. It take and it, it made me it made me appreciate, and this is partly of course why children generally can read better and, and more deeply than adults, is because they don't have responsibilities and, and things intruding on them all the time when they sit down with a book they sit down with a book whereas even now at the best of times an adult will sit down with a book and you know, have to think well after this I'll do my taxes my this that and the other call the optician blah blah blah, blah. um and then in the pandemic you're just scoured out even more by the raging uncertainty of of what was all going on at the time going back to when reading was you know easy natural and fun um when <laughs> you started writing bookworm i was wondering whether mm. when the book was kind of emerging even before the writing started if there was one particular book where you thought i must put this book in my book this is the book that i need to tell other readers about and this is the book yeah. that i need to remember uh there were two or three really and then there was just a cascade how could I put this one in but it was Tom's Midnight Garden which was is just and remains the probably the most perfect closest to perfection you'll ever get for uh, for a children's book especially uh, which is a time time slip book with Tom goes to stay with his aunt to recover or to get away from measles and it's in a converted Victorian mansion house and of course, when this clock strikes midnight, it slips back to how it was. The old house is complete and the garden is back. And Hetty, who lives in the garden, is back. Hattie, sorry. And it's just the most beautiful. And it's, it's modulated so carefully. And you, you, barely, you, know, you, like, you barely notice the, the slip and you accept it all um, entirely. And the world is perfect. And the relationship between... Uh, the girl and the boy across time and space is just exquisite. And the whole thing was just so lovely. I thought, if anyone, I mean, it's, I, it's, a, it's more or less a classic. So, I mean, lots of people do know about it, but this, that was the one I really wanted to write about. And then there was The Phantom Tollbooth, which was the first book I ever read that was about words and about, really about writing in a way, and made me conscious that 
what I loved about words was that you could play with them as things as well as make them read them as a story. They were sort of fun in themselves, my version of Lego, really. Um, but Phantom Tollbooth is about the, the Dictionopolis and Digitopolis. And Milo, this bored, disaffected, awful child, goes to visit them in his little toy car that mysteriously gets sent to him through a phantom and has to pass through a phantom toll booth. And again, you just accept this because it's so brilliantly written out. Off he goes. He goes through the doldrums, which are obviously quite a depressing place, and meets Humbug and uh, Tok the Watchdog and all this kind of clever stuff. Meets all these characters and it's kind of heightens Lewis Carroll in a way by Norton Juster. And I just, I just loved it as a, as a completely different plane of understanding. And that was, so they were sort of my twin poles of, of childhood reading. And then the third one was the first funny book I ever read, which was um, Private Keep Out by Gwen Grant. And that was, apart from being very funny, it's this nameless heroine who lives in a Nottinghamshire colliery town uh, just after the war. And... It was the first time I'd really seen my own family's sensibility reflect, not that I knew the word then, but reflected back because they were this Northern family that just communicated through sarcasm uh, instead of feelings or anything like that. And um, how about, and I suddenly went, oh yes, this is us. Oh God, I've not seen that before. Um, despite having loved and enjoyed so many other books, but they were mostly canonical, mostly, you know, your middle-class uh, Noel Stretfield, all that kind of thing. There's lots and lots of school stories and obviously had lots of connections with them, but it wasn't until they got this very specific family in Private Keep Out that I went, oh, that's something else. That is really, that's us, that's me. And it made me think, it makes me think now how important uh, representation is for much more important identities than being. No. There is something really exhilarating, isn't there, sort of feeling allowed, and especially if books have been magical and wonderful, but not missed the mark exactly, but more, but you felt as though you're the one who's got to do the work to live in the world. Yeah. And when a book is just welcoming you, I think it it's not just that book, it's you feel more a part of all of the books and of the other books that you then go on to read. Yeah, it's lovely and it's it's and it makes you realise where they fall short, that sometimes it's not you um, that's not getting mm. the book or it's not, you know, not understanding this, that and the other. It's because you're being asked, you know, the, the author has made too many assumptions. You're being asked to make too many leaps. And it makes you think even because we, because we, we do it from really the, the moment we can read as girls and women, you're often being asked to put yourself at the male point of view mm. without anyone knowing that they're writing that or acknowledging that they're requiring half the population to do that. Um, and that's a huge thing. So you're already quite often making that leap um, and not being yourself or not finding yourself without even realising it. I often think of um, E. Nesbitt and the, the Samiad books and is it Oswald and that he's written in a way that's sort of very engaging and you don't he sort of presents himself as a third person character while writing in the in the first person and that being the only hero of a book that I really connected with and it's probably as simple and basic and I'm as you know easily fooled and led as like oh we just said I so you know that first person identification but whether it is Enesbit's ability to write 
a boy hero to make boys pick up the book, but someone that she could make sure that girls could connect with and not feel any distance or remove from. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was never a great fan of The Treasure Seeker, so I don't know. I'd have to go back and read it. That would be really interesting. I think she was one of the first to write a children's I could be wrong here. She's one of the first to write a children's book from the first person anyway, let alone to do something so clever as to have this kind of unreliable narrator. A book that I was really excited to read about in Bookworm. Sorry to go on about your um, book that came out a couple of years ago and you've got a fabulous brand new book, which um, just because my family read it and loved it and all the books in the series and I'd not heard anyone else mention these books ever. Um, The Family from One End Street and the Associated Stories. And um, I think a lot about them going off to the the G-Drop Inn and, um, gosh, I can't remember her name, but she's allowed to make custard because there's an abundance of eggs and no one minds if she makes a mistake and the eggs run out. Can you imagine? Can you imagine in uh, post-war England what that was like? Uh, No, I mean, the family from One End Street is a a lovely... I mean, people are aware, I think, of often the first one, but they're very, very rarely aware that there's a sequel and more rarely aware that there's a third one, which is the best one, which is Holiday at the Dew Drop In, where Kate gets to live my life my dreams uh i really did think this book was written especially for me but she goes off this town child goes off to stay at the dew drop in which is a thatched cottage and pub uh for the whole summer and gets to do the whole you know the county fair uh the wildflower gathering everything and, and you basically just live in a village in the 19 19- i can't remember where it's set because the the first one was quite early I want to say she wrote that in the 30s but I could be wrong but yeah but then you know this old-fashioned and I just couldn't get enough I read it on a Cornish holiday and thought it just book I could stop reading now books don't get any better than this clearly um, as she walks along the cow parsley hedges and I could see cow parsley from where I was I couldn't believe it I love the idea that you were on holiday already but fantasizing about you know being in a different <laughs> village at a different time <laughs> Well, you know, it was still 1980, whatever, and the the present. Who wants to live in the present? God. Not me at the age of 10. <laughs> sure. Or me at the age of 36, if I'm entirely oh, God. honest. God. You should see me, yes, you should see me at 47, Christ. I know there was lots of kind of 18 months ago, everybody went off and read The Plague and things, but were there, <laughs> in times when we need joy, in literature or wherever we can get it um what are the books that bring you joy and are there books that you reread often in desperate times or times of necessity I think I was a fool for much of the pandemic because I have a sort of rule now which again is is stupid of anyway I have a sort of rule at the moment as I get older which is not to reread while I've still got new stuff to read. Now, of course, I have more new books now, literally, or books, unread books, I should say, to see me out. However long I live, I cannot read the books I currently have. So I'm on a hiding to nothing with finishing them anyway. But what I'm doing in the meantime is denying myself the deep, deep pleasures of rereading and comfort reading. So I must stop that. And I hereby pledge to stop that. Um, And especially so during the blinking pandemic, because Looking back, what I really should have done and wanted to do was reread Maeve Binchy, uh, Light a Penny Candle and Circle of Friends before she started writing about modern Ireland. You know, that doesn't, I, I like the past stuff again. Um, and I should have reread all my lovely Nora Lofts and just given myself a break because there's, there's so much value to, to rereading. 
that's when you get, you know, that's when you learn how to read. That's when you learn how to write. Certainly when you reread. Stop. I put this stupid rule in place that, that I'm now quite cross about. Oh, but I absolutely feel that way. And I think, you know, I've, I'm very, 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 very new to writing fiction. But, you know, if I can do it, it's because I have read, you know, Marion Keyes accidentally, almost mm. in a sort of an academic way. And I've read so many of those books you know, three, four, five times more than that. And just to get a sense of how she's doing it. And there's not a sort of like, oh, I must really sit down and frown at this and work it out and unravel it. But it's impossible to miss it the more you sort of go through it and study it. And the it's the rhythm of the sentences that I love, but also the way certain things fall. And again, it's that, you know, the brilliance of the sort of the unreliable narrators who don't know how unreliable they are either and the way that you're sort of, you're brought along with them. But I wanted to ask you about um, Nora Loft, who I don't know at all. Um, Well, she's wonderful. She's a, or was, a historical novelist. And she writes, I suppose, sagas is the word, but she'll follow, for example, she'll follow in her most famous trilogy called The Old House of the Old House at Vine, she follows, for example, one house through the ages and all the different families or generations of family that live in a, one place or one village. Uh, and her, her, her historical knowledge and the minutiae of life and the texture of it all is, is just amazing. You know, there are lots of writers who could do the big stuff and, and do all the kings and queens stuff and set it all in court and, and are really good at all that. And I love those too. But I'd much rather read about... Uh, the absolutely granular life of a medieval peasant on the site of a particular house that then grows through the ages. And she's so good. And she tells such a good story. And that's, she can, she can rock a story um, like no one else while also building in all this material in such an organic way that you just, you just feel like you're there while also just compelled to find out what happens to all these characters. And I just think she's she's one of those those novelists you're kind of you're kind of glad, a bit like Kathleen Winter and, and Anya Seaton, you're very glad that they were almost forced by their times not to become academic historians uh, and instead had to turn to novel writing for ladies because no one else could have done it with such all-round satisfaction. So I do love a book where there's that sense of what a person's priorities are. And I do struggle with historical fiction because I think a lot of it is when a person has done so much research and they don't want mm. to kind of throw any of it away. And there's this yeah. sort of the element of, you know, well, I, I know how the architect built the house they're living in and I'm going to talk in great detail about the building materials or the plumbing or I don't know. But to know what it is to live through that emotionally and, you know, what you're sort of... A person's concerns will be I think that's what I love about um a lot of like children's literature and young adult literature and they're not worried about you know mortgages and bills and you know is the roof going to fall in but they are as worried about different things and writers who capture that and take that seriously and I think that's um my pandemic reading after years of being told to read the the Cazalet books by Elizabeth Jane Howard I did and I just think she writes the children so so brilliantly well because there is that sense of they have so many anxieties and fears and concerns and of course they do because they're all sort of like you know don't worry about it but war is about to break out but 
that sense of how you'd apply your sort of an intelligent but childish mind to processing all of that. I mean, that's that. I suppose that's what we're always looking for, isn't it? In any book, you're you're looking for a writer who's totally in command of their material, but is also confident enough and secure enough in themselves to then get out of the way and tell the story and just use what they know to inform it, rather than, as you say, just give you basically an extended Wikipedia <laughs> entry uh, with a bit of plot thrown in. And I think that's what Nora Lofts and, and, and Annie Seaton and, and people like that do so, so well. And of course, it's necessary for children's books because, God, will children chuck a book aside if they feel they're being overtly or covertly educated instead of being entertained? So I'm looking at the books behind you. I can't quite make out any titles. I'm curious about those Persephone. Yeah, I'll know. move a bit closer. Uh, these are unread Persephone's because my red Persephone's are all. I, I keep most of my red books behind my unread books to keep me to keep me honest and keep me keep me going. No rereading. <laughs> no rereading. Exactly. Uh, God, I'm an idiot. But this is. Can you still hear me if I turn away? I think so. Way? Let's have a go. <laughs> okay. So I've got despised and rejected by Rose Allatine and Heat Lightning by Helen Hull. And I can't remember what either of those is about because I think I. I had a, uh, I think they were very kindly sent to me by Nicola Bowman at Persephone when I did. I wrote um, the foreword for a, a Dorothy Whipple called Young Anne, which is her, the first one she wrote. Not, I think the first one published as well, but Persephone published it later. She sent me those as a, as a thank you. I mean, despised and rejected. I, I don't know either of those books. That's the most brilliant good, title. Let's have a look. <laughs> Your ears are pricked up. Let's let's see but as with everything it doesn't matter for Persephone and that's why they can afford not to put blows because you just know you're going to love it for shame I have not read any Dorothy Whipple you fool I know I'm going to remedy this immediately but tell me what was uh the one that you wrote the forward for uh Young Young. which is her first so I I wouldn't actually start there because it's not her best it's lovely it's great you know and, and and Dorothy Whipple's worst day is better than most people's best day. So, you know, do read it. Um, but her others are her sort of her major works are sort of things like They Knew Mr. Knight, which is just this devastating portrait of a family being infiltrated by this sort of a con man, but not just a nasty, just one of those people that gets in your life and is just toxic and poisonous and takes, takes, takes and holds the family beneath the waterline, really. It's just, it's just awful and it's brilliant uh, there's another one who's i'm terrible with titles um so forgive me but there's one about is it someone at a distance that's just the most again incredible detailed portrait of amongst other things domestic violence and it's a bit like tenant of wildfell hall nothing you know a lot of most of it happens off screen as it were but you feel the, the fear and that very particular fear and tension and malign influence of someone who's got control of a household i am intrigued i'm mm-hmm. i in on this Doobie. the vibe i'm getting correct me if i'm wrong sort of like if anita bruckner were to write psychological thrillers i don't, I don't know, do you know i've never read any anita bruckner and i don't even know enough about her to know her vibe so i can't tell a you. lot of people i think take again anita bruckner for good because she's been sort of i think market has been quite direct friend of the podcast um and me andy miller is on a a one-man bruckner crusade but she's so funny and i suppose i was thinking about because that's what i always get get the titles confused but it might be 
a friend from abroad or it might be a start in life where part of the story is this woman sort of talking about her terrible, very sort of narcissistic, self-obsessed parents who, you know, kind of torment her and make unreasonable demands of her. And she is the sort of, you know, Brooknerish. I think she's had, she's almost had a life, but she is a, a spinster and a lady academic and she's not quite ever managed to fully escape their clutches and get away. And then they do, but they've got a friend who's even worse, the parents have, and she's a sort of a Brighton hippie but like a pre-hippie and they sort there's just Mm. this week where they cut they go away with her and they just sort of have to eat this like terrible like carpet scrapings homemade muesli and go and see it just sounds like the most sort of bleak spartan holiday ever but she's got a real sort of like waspish like extremely dry funny but very very funny kind of cruel streak that I love but she's got this really sort of emotional lucidity too I don't think I don't think Whipple's got a cruel streak no she's much more Got certainly, she's got massive acuity, but there's no. It's just a wry commentary and 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 delicate anatomization of situations, common situations, and more extreme situations like violent husbands and things. And I suppose you know it's a classic plot, isn't it? You know, a stranger comes to town. I think it's always interesting that you know, sort of a person can infiltrate a situation. And just the, the exploitation of innocence is always just horrible. You know, naivety is just uh, pushes my buttons. Man. A book that I read this summer, so not really a sort of lockdown book, but it's what like a book that I was sure like, how have I not read this? This is something that you know when I was sort of thirteen and intense. Um, I was thinking of the Victoria Wood sketch where they're camping, and it's like your mother said you were always intense when you were a child. Intense. I was always intense. Um, <laughs> invitation to the Waltz. And that awkward tea, and there's a bit where it's, have you read it? No, again, uh, Rosamund Lehman, I haven't done anything. I've, not, I've, not, I've read so little of what I, I technically should have read, both in terms of should have read because they're good and everyone tells you to read, and should have read as in you would have thought I would, being like what I'm like and what else I've read. I just, I don't know why I've got these massive gaping holes in my Education, education. No, well, I this is my revenge because I'm very defensive about not having read any Dorothy Whipple. Um, <laughs> but there is this part where she's got a weird uncle and she comes downstairs and it's her birthday and she never quite knows how to kind of navigate his oddness and how to greet him. And it's like, I don't want to kiss oh, him. Uncle. Do yeah. I shake his yeah. hand? I've got to do some sort of physical, like, greeting and so she goes for a handshake and he slips I think it's like 10 bobbin or something and she immediately oh. feels absolutely like like a worm because she's oh it, it looks yeah. like I was expecting him to give me money and I wasn't and yeah. now I feel yeah. this like completely yeah. I just want to hide under the table and I don't know what to do with myself and it's a real it's a very very slight and it's about sisters as well who are about I think they're about a year apart and they start the book so close together but just this, the event this one party and they're sort of very they're posh but poor and they've sort of be, been invited and included but they're never quite really grand enough for most things but they're a little bit too grand to kind of not feel awkward about things but yes I really love that and it just felt very emotionally granular and very nailing of the very specific awkwardness of being a specific sort of teenager yeah oh the exquisite agonies of being a teenager i wouldn't as victoria would says i wouldn't go back again i wouldn't be an adolescent again if you bump my pocket money up to three and six (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Lucy soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen After the Storm by former podcast guest Emma-Jane Unsworth could be described as dark, funny, unflinching and gorgeously written, a memoir about motherhood and postnatal depression. It could also be described as a book with a 21st century Emily Bronte vibe with a dash of Hunter S. Thompson. Lush, furious, hilarious, devastating and intense. After the Storm is published by Welcome and out now. Now back to Lucy. I'm sad Victoria Wood never wrote a novel. And as those words leave my mouth, I think, did she? Yes, I mean, I was, I'm sad she didn't write just, you know, everything. I'm sad the whole world wasn't 100% Victoria Wood all the time. But, I mean, she had the freedom to do whatever she wanted to do. So hopefully she she didn't want to write a yeah. novel. It was just, and maybe that means she couldn't or didn't think it would be something in her wheelhouse or, or not a best expression of her talents. It'd be interesting to know. But yes, I mean, Les, Daw- Les Dawson wrote novels. Oh, what were his um, novels like? Yeah. Uh, I haven't read them. I, g- I gave the set to my, my dad um, a while back and I haven't, haven't nabbed them back yet. <laughs> but again, again, comic comic novels, you know, one was called, I think, Whistle Down the Wind or some some joke on wind anyway. But I think they were, you know, they um, did a bit of business and I'll be interested to read them when I finally am allowed back because he's shielding so I only kind of, knit back every now and again try not to kill him with my any pre-covid viral bits i'm shedding oh what world world and i wonder whether it was a sort of you know all the popping they or whether he wanted to be you know a little bit more serious i think i think i think les dawson did have a did have a bit of a uh hankering to be taken more seriously or at least to be appreciated properly for what he was actually doing because I think and I think that's slightly different I think he like a lot of comedians got a bit annoyed at people thinking it was easy just Mm -hmm. to come out and be funny if you were funny but of course there was a lot more going on than that and him he he liked to write I mean that was it was tongue-in-cheek all his um stuff about oh you know I remember sitting 
looking up at looking up at the up at the sky, thinking, looking at the, the velvet as if scattered, you know, as if a handful of diamonds had been scattered over a, a black velvet throw. And I thought, I must put a roof on this ladder. <laughs> you know, so, so he liked to do all the the riffing mm. and the, and a proper, you know, write that is writing right. It's not just one liner gags. Um, but I suspect the novels are more of that kind of thing. You know, to be very, very pretentious about it, I think, you know, great comedy is like poetry and it is about rhythm and economy and really nailing feelings and ideas and that mix of what is familiar and what is surprising at the same time. I know you mentioned private keep out, but I think it's a hell of a thing when we discover for the first time that novelists are allowed to be funny and it doesn't have to be a very serious business and there are funny books out there. Woodhouse is always a, was always a discovery. I mean, the, the Just William books are kind of juvenile Woodhouse. And then when you do discover Woodhouse um, proper, they're just such a joy. Again, that's another one I should have reread in lockdown. What an idiot. Where it is just, you are reading just for the joy of the sentences and the joy of Jeeves and Worcester. What more can you say? Just the, this, these fleeting descriptions that conjure up in, in you know a world entire and plot works perfectly and it takes just you know nothing nothing lasts longer than it takes to read it. it I think a lot about how more than any other sort of book I love maybe even more than someone like you know problematic Fabian Aglaton but there's those books are really really quite similar you know structurally you're not surprised but you always are like you know I would never ever 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 hold it against him not that you know him as a state sort of because you'd care but to have um because producer Dale is a prolific reader and collector of P.G. Woodhouse and there are there must be at least a hundred or two hundred of those books in this house and you sort of always know what you're going to get but it's nothing other than wonderful. Woodhouse himself you know used to say he'd, he'd often get halfway through a, a book and realised he'd written it before. He'd, he'd used the plot before and have to start again. Um, so, yeah, the, but it's, it's, it's all in the execution. And are you Jeeves and Worcester rather than Blandings as a personal preference? Yes, I've never really, I've never really got into the others. Um, maybe, maybe Smith a bit. But, yeah, no, no, Jeeves and Worcester, I think, are the, the best. first one I've read, which is, has always been my favourite, I think, just because it was the first and I had that giddy... I can't believe this is a book. And also it's sort of a book by like an old writer that, you know, this is, looks like I'm doing proper reading, but I'm just cheating and having a lovely time. <laughs> it's, um, it's the indiscretions of Archie. And even that his sort of the English aristocracy and their sort of bumbling nature versus these very sort of, you know, sharp-eyed, sharp-tongued Americans who didn't quite have a sense of irony and very sort of times money about things. And mm. Archie is the sort of the in-law just making everything worse and worse. Um, yeah, I'm just very, very fond of that book and that world. And that's something that I'd like to reread. Also, I love the clicking of Cuthbert and the golf ones. And I don't really know why, because, you know, to the point of... Back to, you know, Enid Blyton, skipping all of the lacrosse matches, but short stories about golf I really, really enjoyed. Well, I suppose they're not about golf, are they? Or they're only very superficially about golf. Yeah, whereas Enid Blyton's very definitely just about lacrosse when she's writing about lacrosse. Play up and play the game. No, thank you. Absolutely. With all all the broken fingers you can muster, (laughs) yeah. 
I was very much a Gwendolyn Mary Lou hybrid. <laughs> yes. yes, I could never quite reconcile the fact that we were supposed to love, you know, the heroines were these great hearty girls who loved sports. I was like, yeah, but no. Are there any books with your own children that you're sort of excited about sharing with them when they're ready? Or are there, are there any books that you've kind of discovered with them? that you didn't know about, that you're delighted to find? Uh, it's been a great disappointment to me that uh, I've got one child who's 10, and this, so far the only book we've overlapped in liking at all, I love it, he likes it, uh, is Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Um, because for everything else, he's, he's very, um, likes fantasies, he likes big sweeping epics, whereas I was always very, you know, the furthest I ever got in, in fantasy is, is Narn- the Narnia books obviously uh didn't do Tolkien didn't do any of that uh, I like realism naturalism uh whereas he's like children I can see children anytime I like <laughs> give me swords give me dragons uh and all the rest of it and now he's reading the eagle of the nine which is Rosemary Sutcliffe who I've never been able to get on with despite everyone and unknowing and can, clearly I can see she's extraordinary talent and and clever and, and brilliant writer but just not for me uh, and he's off reading Eagle of the Ninth and talking to his grandfather about it and leaving me out at me, bookworm of bookworms, out in the cold. Nice. Don't have kids, pe- people that just disappoint you at every, the most unexpected turn. That does seem to be the, well, no, well actually in um, Are We Having Fun Yet? I love those kids. And I just love Evie as a sort of brilliantly malevolent presence. Uh, do you have any favourite siblings in books or dream or nightmare brothers or sisters that you'd like or hate for your own? I used to love or still do love the Marlowe family in the Antonia Forrest books. who's another underrated author who never quite got her due. Um, she wrote, I think, 10 books about the Marlowe family. Four of them were school stories and they were the ones that kind of got republished and were taken, but were taken. So you've got these four books basically out of sequence with the the remaining and then the remaining six um really never got republished until very recently by by little independent imprints but they were great you know there was sort of eight eight of them i think six girls two boys and again she was just so good on the on family life and the bickering and the bantering and just having to learn to get on with these people that life has thrown you together with and how you can all you can still be different people and not not particularly like you might love each other but not particularly like each other there's a great Nicola um is one of uh, twins and she doesn't particularly like her twin Laura they're they're very very different and she doesn't much like her older sister Anne who's very quiet and good and unimaginative and Nicola just can't just can't see it just can't see why Anne Anne and it's brilliantly drawn how she's, they're all part of a fan. They love each other, but they don't necessarily have to like each other, which I think is a very subtle distinction to be drawing for, especially that quite a young age group. But I wanted to be, I'd quite like to be part of that clan. And that's really interesting, I think, that even though it sounds like they're not having a happy experience and that loving but not liking each other, there's still something that draws you in and wants to be in that world. I think it was the idea that, I think this is probably early early signs of introversion this idea that you could be with people 
And they also had very big house, you know, they could go off and be alone at any time they liked. But this idea that you didn't have to get on with people, that some people just didn't suit you and you should just, you could just remove yourself from the vicinity and that would be better for all concerned. Is, a, is quite a nice idea, I think, to be alone in, a, alone in a crowd. So I used to go quite often when I wanted to feel more alone, I'd go to Ikea and wander around there or have a, or work in the cafe because then you're, you're in a crowd, you, you are away from more people. It's, it's clearer that you're on your own. I'm not, it's clearer that you're not interacting with people and that makes you feel better. Oh, that's going to be our clip for the episode when I want to be alone. <laughs> I go to Ikea. I've not heard of any other writers who go to Ikea to write. <laughs> I think that's fabulous. I bet that... <laughs> but it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It does in a, in, a, in a twisted, oblique kind of way. I think so. You can't, you know, if you're alone, you're just alone. I mean, I'm alone in the house now. What does that mean? Uh, that's easy. I need to go and be around people to really feel that I'm not communicating with anyone. I did just hear a siren when you said, I don't know if an alarm goes off yeah. when you say you're alone or that's sort of, you know, being as alone as we can get yeah, in like these times. My husband and child go, oh, oh, she's got free time. What can we ask her? What can we ask her to find? <laughs> Are there any writers where you've sort of coveted their routine or had to go at it? I do, I have a slight, an interest and also a resentment in the way we're like, well, you know, Anthony Trollope, went and like delivered a round of posts before he wrote I don't know that wasn't yeah. part of his writing routine but the way we sort of fetishize and remember I'm I'm very envious of anyone who basically has a wife I think or a wife type entity in their lives which is you know most authors in most of history uh so yeah you know you've got Trollope able to sit down and, and please himself once his work is done um Woodhouse I expect was, was similarly taken care of uh, but I, the one that always makes me, I think I may even have mentioned this on, on the middle, so apologies if, if I have, but I remember reading years and years ago before I even became a wife and mother and still thinking, oh, that's a nice life, was when I read an interview with Martin Amis who said, well, obviously I get up and I, I just spend the first two hours of the morning reading uh, just to restock the tanks. I was like, oh my God, what a, what a, what a world that encapsulates. Um, so, but yes, that's what I'd like. I'd like, you know, two hours to read, first of all, and then get on with, with my writing day, <laughs> which, which is not how it works at all. Oh, as a woman with few demands on me, <laughs> a lot of time to be lazy. I do like to start the day reading, but I think that's really interesting as yeah. this, this notion I of... want you to. I want this for everyone. <laughs> this it's is what we should all have. But this idea yeah, of kind of, of restocking the tank. And I think I hear lots of writers say, well, I can't possibly read a thing when I'm writing. And I try to not read anything that feels too close to what I'm doing because there's always that fear of... Um, I think I've got this right. When um, our first ever episode, um, we had Dolly Alderton and she was saying that she was sort of going back over... I think the first draft of everything I know about love and she'd written a line she's like oh that sounds good I'm I'm really pleased with that like, well done me and then had another thought and I can't remember who the poet was but she's like oh that's John Betjeman <laughs> that's not me I can't use this I can't keep this in <laughs> and so there is always that sort of you know am I can I write or am I just a mimic um yeah. am I just parroting yeah but I do think it keeps that bit of your brain in good nick to be in the you know in someone else's imagination yeah I, I think I think it basically depends what stage of writing you're at isn't it if, if you're in the middle of a, a novel I can see that 
many people's urge would just be to you know watch telly and chill out at the end rather than read and use that same half of your brain but if you're just noodling around and you're doing research or you're doing a notes or you're just doing outlines I still I still read as much as I do any other time but once you're deep into it I think it does sort of drain you enough that I don't know you sort of need it you need stimulating in some mm. other way and just a night's sleep will restock your word tanks enough if you've just got to write your own write your own blinking stuff is it's hard it really is I was wondering what is on your pile is there anything that you have not yet read that you're really 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 excited about getting to and also now you know with me as your witness you've said you are going to commence the rereading <laughs> what you're going to reread first I for am. comfort um the comfort reading I'm going to go back to Nora Lofts I really I was foolish not to and um she's so brilliant and you get you know I've only read her once I could I can barely remember any of the plots anyway it would be like reading a new book so I don't know quite why I've cleaved to this for, for so long except that there are just so many books really good books I really want to get to um so it's it's not as if at least I'm not doing it because I think I should be reading you know good books or good literature it's not that there's just so many books I've bought and desperate to read and only have a limited amount of time so at least it's not snobbery that's motivating me it's just trying to be practical and, and yeah. manage my time so morally I think I'm in the clear but uh, practically I'm, I've been a fool last night um I sort of I woke up and I couldn't get back to sleep and I started rereading American Wife purely because it was on my phone and I could read it in the dark without you know causing too many disturbances I was like it's not that long ago since I read this and I've re- I sort of get to big bits and think, oh I vaguely remember that this happened and that was but I was really quite taken aback as to how I remember really 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 enjoying it and thinking it's wonderful and also you know it's rooted in in fact so things that I should remember but I'm, did I take nothing in <laughs> it's just, it's like new it's a, I was so relieved years ago when I read um, Nick Hornby's I think um, the great polysyllabic spree collection of essays and um, he said, I retain so little now. It's, it's like they've slipped completely out of my mind. He said, I just have to hope that there's some deeper shadow memory somewhere that is still going in and, and affecting me and doing me good. Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm retaining an, an impression somewhere in my brain or soul. Because otherwise, it does feel rather pointless. And I think I just have to hope that's there because I can't remember. That's why I keep a, a reading list now um, because I can't remember what I've read. If people ask me, I'd go, I'm sorry, I must consult the document. I know I really, really enjoyed this and it's nothing to do with how much I loved it or admired it. It's just my calcifying brain. But then I just try to make myself feel better by thinking it can't be infinite. And when we're younger, we are so porous and there are fewer things and we can be so much more passionate about it because there's room and now it's, it's got to be a little bit one in, one out. Yeah, but also things are, are new as well. So they strike you with the force of novelty when you first read about, um, I remember in, a, in one of the Antonio Forrest books in the end of, end, end of term, uh, Laurie, one of Nicola's twin, has this moment where she's thinking about letting Nicola maybe play in the netball match because she's hurt her leg and the first and the, there's a paragraph whole par- it takes a whole paragraph to unpick what she's thinking when she says the first part of her mind the easy part thought just you know how much fun it would be for Laurie to, for Nicola to play and how good of Laurie to let her the second part 
thought um, that, you know, if she did this, that then somehow it would come about that she would somehow, you know, fate would reward her by letting her play the part she wanted in the Christmas play. And then the third part, the underneath part, the bit she really didn't like, thought that uh, that if Nicola was discovered, there would be an almighty row and she almost certainly would not be doing the part that Laurie covets in the play. And even though Laurie still wouldn't be doing it, she wouldn't mind so much. And so this, so she you know, sort of broke apart, unpacked all these layers. And I remember thinking, oh my God, other people, that means everyone else probably has layers of, layers of internal life, just like I do, that's amazing. And I was, you know, sort of looked out onto humanity slightly differently after that. Whereas now I don't, I don't really see how anything could strike me with that force in what I read now. So it's, of course, it's not going to sink in in the same way. You know, I can still partially at least recite that from memory from 30 years, oh God, no, much more than 30 years ago, 35 years ago, because it's new and you're open to it. And as you say, you're You've nothing else crowding it out. And maybe that's all that matters, really. It doesn't matter if we don't remember the last five things we've read without consulting a list, as long as we remember those special, intense first things still. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And there, yes. Um, I do wish I could actually just remember what I'd read. <laughs> so what's the next new or new-to-you book that you may not remember immediately afterwards, but that you're looking forward to? One I will remember because it's non-fiction and I find those easier to remember, is um, Word Horde by Hannah Vedeen, I think. Sorry, again, names. It's definitely called Word Horde. It's about, as I say, non-fiction book about the vestiges of old English that are left in our current English, modern English. And it's just, it's just a lovely, lovely read. Again, it's one of those books, like we were talking about in the context of fiction, but one of those books where by someone who's you know, so, so knowledgeable, so steeped in their knowledge that they don't have any desire to show you how clever they are. They only want to communicate their, their knowledge and their enthusiasm. And it's written with such love and care and accessibility to the layperson that you can feel it just, just doing you good as you, as you, in, in, you know, feeding your soul and your brain at the same time. So I'm loving that. I've just started that. And then I've got 9 billion others. Lined. I'm reading my first Karen Slaughter, who again, just is, which is a thriller. And again, just a fantastic storyteller, a bit like Lee Child and Jack Reacher, just pound, 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 hit the beats, hit the beats and get you through it. And just a really good, invigorating read. And then after that, what shall I do? I'll probably do The Royal Game by Anne O'Brien, which is historical fiction. And, oh God, just so many. I could look around this room and, and give myself palpitations that all I want to read and all I will read. Cunning Women by Elizabeth Lee, Glovemaker, Anne Weisberger, Mordew by Alex Phoebe. I'm going to try because it's a bit out of my comfort zone because it's, again, a bit fantastical, a bit fantasy, but everyone says it's, it's brilliant and, and will suit people even if they don't like fantasy. Oh, I like the sound of that as someone who, when you mentioned, you know, dragons yeah. and swords, I had that very sort of visceral, <laughs> no, thank you, but no. that I will try. But this yeah. sounds very, you know, varied, very much a sort of, you know, bookish five a day or... Yes, it's not deliberate in any way. I just, I've never been very affected by what you should be reading. I you know, it, whenever a, a prize long list or short list comes out, I've never read more than one or two on it, but I just happened to come across them because I wanted to to read them because I liked them as they came out. And that, in that sense, I'm very badly read, not consistently. Well, I'm always read. delighted with myself. I have read one or two sort of already by, um, <laughs> you know, by dint of just wanting to read them. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way to do anything, isn't it, really? 
do it for love, not. Uh... It's, it's the equivalent of peer pressure now. Mm. People say, oh, have you read, have you read blah, blah, blah? No, I haven't because I don't fancy it. I just like I'm not going to your nightclub at the age of 14 because I don't like it and it's horrible. It doesn't suit me. Go away. Leave me alone. Let me do my thing. I think it's the only way to be. Well, thank you so much for thank your you. brilliant, brilliant book list. And I'm very excited about what I'm now going to go away and read. Yes, I'm going to go and do an invitation to the waltz. I think I know I have a copy. I'm going to go and do it. I really, really hope you love it and that yeah. I haven't oversold it because that is always the fear. But it's <laughs> no, just no, that... I have got a copy because I know I've, I know, I know I will. But it's not like I'm the only person in the world. Who's like, no, Rosalind oh, exactly. Lewis, she's it's, great. It's... <laughs> It's also the equivalent of laying down wine, isn't it? You know, I, I have bought it. I know I, I know it's a book for me. I just haven't got around to it yet. Maybe now's the time. To... You know, thank you so much. It's been so, so lovely to chat. Well, thank, thank you, you very so much. much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to Lucy. Are We Having Fun Yet? is out now, published by Souvenir Press. I love this book. It's wise, wildly funny, rightly infuriating. And if you have yet to read it, I'm very jealous. You can follow us at YBooked on social media, look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thanks so much to everyone who's left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Lucy at acast.com booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from A.L. Kennedy. If ever the difficulties of your life seem overwhelming, consider the prospect of being eaten alive by savage penguins and rejoice that such horrors are unknown to you. See you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 